Welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. This week, I'm joined by Stephen Lores, who's the research director at the Belgian National Fund for Scientific Research, the founding director at the GIGA Consciousness Research Unit at Liège University Hospital in Belgium, and he's an associate professor at the Cherva Research Center at the Laval University in Canada. Today, we'll be discussing his fascinating career and his ideas on complementary medicine and human consciousness. Stephen was born in Liège in Belgium. He's an award-winning neuroscientist and clinical neurologist and a leading physician on disorders of consciousness, persistent vegetative state, and locked-in syndrome. Stephen completed his medical training at the University of Brussels in Belgium followed by a master's in medical and pharmaceutical research at that same institution, a PhD in biomedical sciences at Liège University, and a further qualification in palliative care. As I mentioned, he has a number of titles, and in addition, he's founding co-director of Huangzhou International Consciousness Research Institute in China. He's also the co-founder of MindCare International Foundation. Stephen, not surprisingly, has received multiple awards, including from the European Academy of Neurology and U.S. Society of Cognitive Neuroscience. He's also the author of 10 scientific books, and his latest, The No-Nonsense Meditation Book, is an international bestseller, and we're going to come on to that. He's a renowned speaker, an expert on brain science, and has presented not one, but five TEDx talks, and I commend you to watch them. His team focuses on exploring the human mind in health and disease, assessing coma and related states, concussion, near-death experiences, anesthesia, dreaming, hypnosis, and meditation using the latest brain imaging technologies and wearables. I asked Stephen about what he gets up to when he's not knee-deep in research, and surprisingly, not a lot, especially given that he has five kids who keep him very busy, and I, I, I loved hearing this. His job is his passion. We're clearly very privileged to have Dr. Stephen Lores here with us today, and I look forward to hearing more about his impressive career. Welcome to the podcast, sir. Hello, Jonathan. Wonderful to be here today. In preparing for these, these podcasts, I, I read background material, I look at the CV, I look at speeches online, I read books that people have read. I didn't know where to start with you. There's so much. Um, and it's all fascinating, especially since I recently have begun to explore things like mindfulness, meditation, and, and we're going to come on to that because I, I have questions from my own, my own perspective as a rather cynical uh, surgical scientist. So let's start at the beginning. You knew since childhood that you wanted to be a doctor, even after a primary school teacher told everyone in your class they'd never go to university. Incidentally, I had the same experience. What made you persist and what inspired you to pursue neurology and your particular passions? It's a challenging question, uh, Jonathan. So as far as I can remember, and I was born on December 24th, it was a C-section. Actually, it was the surgeon's first c-section so my mom lost a lot of blood and always told me you know you're here thanks to medicine and you're going to become a medical doctor so that was easy and then i as a teenager i think like many of us were asking these big questions what is my place here in the universe what about my internal universe my thoughts 
So going for neurology was kind of obvious, and I think it's the most mysterious organ, right, the brain. And I'm terribly grateful that I'm actually being paid to do research on one of the biggest mysteries, that's human consciousness, and translate that knowledge to the, to the hospital with the brain center at, at the University Hospital in, in Liège. And, and it's a great team, so really the merit is, is rather to them because they, they work and permit us to um, reduce our ignorance, if I can phrase it that way, when it comes to understanding our thoughts, perceptions and emotions. Just a quick note to our audience. I'd like you to take note of a common theme between the people I'm privileged to, to chat with. These immense achievers all have one thing in common. They tend to be very, very humble. And I don't think that's an accident. I think it's, it's a causative factor. So, you know, the perception of medical scientists as being pompous and arrogant is and full of hubris is erroneous and is perpetuated by Hollywood. So thank you for that. So Stephen, during your career, you've published over 500 scientific articles on neuroplasticity, the ability of the brain to change itself, neuroimaging and the works of the human mind. One of your most cited articles, by the way, 500 articles, that is ridiculous. That is amazingly productive. One of your most cited articles has the intriguing title of Willful Modulation of Brain Activities in, in Disorders of Consciousness. Take us through what that study examined and the conclusions you drew from it. So, uh, Jonathan, that actually came out of frustration. You know, as a, as a physician working emergency ward, intensive care and, and rehab, when confronted to a patient after severe traumatic brain injury or bleeding or cardiac arrest survivor, uh, basically when we try to measure consciousness, what do we do? We ask uh, a simple question like squeeze my hand or do this, do that. And if the patient is not showing uh, a motor response, we might conclude he's, he's unconscious, right? But that's, that's quite limited and, and similar to what our colleagues in ancient Egypt did. So thanks to technology, we can do the same thing, which is asking people questions, but we measure now with functional MRI what's going on inside their brain. And I think we pioneered this together with the team at Cornell University, and Nicholas Schiff, a neurologist, and Adrian Owen, psychologist from Cambridge now, London, Ontario. So these three centers were asking these questions. Well, is it true that these patients who are not responding when we look at their motor activity truly have no functioning brain and mind? And so that's where it started to use functional MRI, asking them questions and then seeing that some of these patients we used to call in a persistent vegetative state, which is a terrible term. We now coin these people um, unresponsive wakefulness, which is neutral. So these unresponsive patients sometimes can show brain activations that we can pick up, and then we could decode it into a yes-no answer. And so this was proof of concept that uh, we can actually communicate with people who are unable to move and, and now are with the team working very hard on what we call brain-computer interfaces, which is the same approach, but it's with cheaper EEG measures. So we shouldn't judge a book on its cover, and I think consciousness is not black or white. We have patients where we have underestimated the capacity of the brain to generate thoughts and, and, and perceptions. 
like I said, I've got so many, there were the questions that I, I, I thought I was going to ask, but just the other day, a friend asked me if I would like to attend a sound bath. And I thought, well, I sometimes listen to music when I'm having a bath, but apparently this was entirely different. It was a sort of a med, like a meditation class with a, a dimly lit room where this lady used a lot of, um, I think they call them singing bowls and other little uh, sounds mm -hmm. and had very nice incense going. And, mm -hmm. I, you know, I'm a bit of a cynic. I thought, all right, I'll lie on a mattress for an hour and listen to some nice music. But it was actually, I came out of it feeling very, very different. I came out of it feeling really chill. Tell us about what happens in the brain when we expose ourselves to such things. Well, I think it's good that we just pay attention to what's going on between our ears, our mental well-being. We spend a lot of time in our heads, and so we better make a good place of, of, of that. And uh, I think we all neglect somehow our mental well-being. So just hitting the pause button and, and laying down, in your case, listening to music, which is very powerful, it, it touches our emotions and doesn't need actually language comprehension. It's even something we use in, in the uh, coma survivors, and we've shown that there's increased connectivity when you listen to music. So, so yes, this is very powerful and permits you to reconnect somehow with your emotional needs and to calm the mind. It's not something magical. Um, also in the No Nonsense Meditation book, I, I review the science on how all of these exercises and practices can, can really be positive and, and have a measurable impact uh, when we look at the brain's structure and function. You mentioned the word structure, and that inspires a question. I, I have some friends who, who are astronauts who have flown missions, and I'm a very keen aviator. I love aviation medicine. And apparently, zero gravity, as experienced by those in space, can affect the cerebral ventricles. And I was fascinated to see that you've published an article on structural brain changes after long-duration spaceflight, which is hopefully going to be, well, the spaceflight part of it is hopefully going to be part of humanity's future. Can you tell us what the main observations were from this study? Yeah, pleasure. So for, for uh, over a decade now, we, we collaborate with the European Space Agency and we can work with these extraordinary uh, athletes of the mind, astronauts, cosmonauts, uh, we put them in the MRI scan before they take off, and then they would spend um, days, weeks, sometimes years up there in the International Space Station. There's seven up there right now. And when they come back, we put them back in the machine, and we can appreciate the effects of, indeed, zero gravity and many, many other things. And we can imagine this is a place where you need what we call cognitive flexibility, so deal with changing reality, work under stress. Some of them also doing meditation, by the way. And, and so that's, that's incredible to see, well, basically when, when you are without gravity, your fluids and pressure that is on, on your body, on your brain changes. It has an impact on your vision, eye, brain system, ventricles. Uh, and it's a, it's a huge challenge to prepare us for longer and longer um, missions. So that's, that's been extraordinary to be able to, to understand and better uh, accompany and guide the, uh, the astronauts up there. Well, it's fascinating. Absolutely. Um, and another thing that you've published about a number of times over the past few years are near-death experiences. And I know it's something you're actively 
still actively researching. Where, where does that interest come from? And can you put a scientific spin and your your ideas on this topic? Because, yeah, it gets talked a lot and I think it gets misinterpreted a lot. Exactly. There's a lot of movies and best-selling books and um, I think way too few uh university labs doing research. So um, if I may, Jonathan, uh, anyone listening here who maybe had such an experience, such a near-death experience or know somebody, please share it with us, with the lab. We've been publishing extensively and there's a number of PhD students and postdocs trying again to reduce our ignorance. I, I think this is a physiological reality. There's We now have thousands of testimonies of people where we thought there were comatose, unconscious after cardiac arrest or severe brain injury or just being afraid to die uh, while there was no real brain or physical damage. And and they would express a sense of well-being, very often also out-of-body experiences. Uh, They see themselves from the outside. They see this light. We need to listen to these people very carefully And then, of course, as a scientist, I want to explain this, which is very challenging. And maybe we have a polarized vision. Some of my colleagues consider, well, you know, this is just an hallucination. It's a lack of oxygen. Why study this? And I would disagree. Others would say, well, this is proof of life after death and the soul leaving the body and so on and so forth. So we just try to apply the scientific method. It's challenging, of course. And it's something where again, at one point, as a scientist, you just become humble, right? It, it's the big, big question. Why am I here? What's going to happen after I die? And of course, that I believe is, is up for each and every citizen to give um, meaning to that uh, particular experience. But scientifically, I think it's just fascinating how a suffering brain, and we need the brain, needs a lot of energy, uh, so after cardiac arrest, and now these people are not dead, that's, that's very important to stress, but yet they have these very rich and vivid memories, um, and that for us is, is important just to study because it impacts all of these people who had such an experience. Sure. You're the founder of the MindCare International Foundation. Can you tell us a bit about the aim of that foundation and, and what your role there is? Yeah, thanks so much. It's been now... 25 years that we're using these technologies, brain scans, and people come to our center in Liège from all over uh, Europe. And we may um, remember uh, Michael Schumacher or Prince Friso from the Netherlands or uh, Ariel Sharon. These these, uh, patients who survived coma but did not recover communication and they got a lot of media attention. But actually there's thousands of these patients And I think they're a bit neglected, really, by medicine and society. Their trajectory of care can clearly be optimized. And um, we uh, try to help these patients and families. We did studies about the needs uh, of families, and they just want to be informed. They want to be involved in the care. Um, And so that's what we try to do with MindCare International Foundation, create this community, and that families who have a coma survivor who take more time to to recover, that they share what they've learned and and really translate the current knowledge to clinical practice uh, in all 
European hospitals, not just the expert centers, and, and in the end, uh, improve patients' quality of life. So it's, it's just starting, but I think it's also part of our job, not to just, as you mentioned, uh, publish uh, scientific papers, but really try by all possible means to um, translate this to, to real life and, and, and real patients and families suffering. And that's the aim of, of MindCare International Foundation. Given some of the things we've talked about, uh, you, you're clearly a very open-minded sort of chap and have a, an integrative, humanistic approach to healthcare. But we have a, an uber-high-tech, hyper-specialized medical world. How do, you, how do you combine the two? And frankly, how do you deal with skeptical colleagues? I think skepticism's a good thing. I think it forces us to be analytical and, and objective. Um, but sometimes, as you know, we get a little set in our ways and are not open to new ideas. So yeah, how do you combine the two? Well, uh, as you said, I think we just need to, to combine both approaches and, and they're really complementary. Uh, uh, of course, as a physician, um, I'm very, uh, I'm in a good position to appreciate, right? The added value of our current medical knowledge, understanding technologies, and our field is becoming hyper-specialized. And it really impacts, of course, our quality of life. And, and we should keep investing in that. And as a neurologist, I was taught you know, to prescribe drugs and interventions. I uh, think I now give a more central and active role to patients. And I discuss more about their life habits because it's it has no no sense if I see a patient who has chronic headache or chronic pain or um, sleeping problems, anxiety, whatever. It's not just prescribing the pills. I need to know well what's the quality of your work environment. Do you do you work out? How is is you know everything around this this person? And and I think this is highly needed. And, and it's not just one or the other. It's really combining the best of both. Here in Canada, by the way, I can prescribe nature therapy. We've got wonderful natural parks. And so I can prescribe to patients a free access for a year. And, and that has been studied. And nature is very powerful. And, and again, if, if you are sick, of course, you need a good doctor. Uh, but there's a lot that we can do and that we've maybe neglected as a medical community to uh, stress the importance of lifestyle, life habits. And, and that's also what I summarize in, in the No Nonsense Meditation book. It's, it's all of these studies. It's not a question of belief. This is backed up by hard science. Let's start to delve into, into that, because I think it's fair to say that you'd consider yourself an advocate for complementary medicine, Although frankly, I'm not sure I like that expression. If something is if if something is a healthcare resolution, it's a healthcare resolution. Why do we divide it into those things that involve, you know, doing what I did for a living, cutting people open or or, or prescribing drugs, um, and and something like as you say, lifestyle medicine. We all know going for a walk in the woods when you're stretched, stretched, stretched or stressed, either of the two, both. Um, makes you feel better. 
you know, we, we now have evidence, evidence, neuropharmacology, the chemistry of the brain. We have evidence on imaging techniques such as PET scanning or functional magnetic resonance imaging scanning. We can see changes in the brain. So tell us a little bit about the science uh, behind these approaches and how you empower patients to improve their life habits, such as with meditation. Well, thank you for that. And to me, it was a, a personal discovery. And, and actually, it's very often the case that we only pay attention to our mental well-being when uh, we hit rock bottom. And, and that was the case for me. I describe it in the book. So I actually at one of the TEDx, um, Jonathan, that was in Paris. I gave a talk there on, on the brain and consciousness. And there was a monk there, um, Mathieu Ricard. He's French. He wrote a number of wonderful books. He's the translator of the Dalai Lama, but also holds a PhD um, from Institut Pasteur. And he talked at that TEDx on, on meditation and compassion. And he invited me for a retreat. That was Mind and Life, Europe, first retreat. And it was a discovery for me in such a way that I wanted to see and study the brain of this monk, Mathieu, invited him to Liège. And after many others came, permitting us to really document what is the impact of meditation on the structure of the brain. We saw that, uh, well, for example, his brain, he was 70 plus, is neurologically speaking like 10, 15 years younger. If we measure it up, voxel-based morphometry, there are just structures that are bigger than average for his age, structures like the anterior cingulate cortex, which is important for attention. His hippocampus, we know, is important for uh, memory, but also the prefrontal cortex and, and the connections with the amygdala. So he's doing a lot of compassion meditation and, and training empathy. And um, that was, for me, very, very interesting to, with the team, see that, publish about these findings, and now prescribe meditation for the patients I see. And, and that is, again, complementary to, if need be, the drugs, the, the, the tranquilizer. But I think that my job now also is to just help people to get rid of these pills. In, in, in Europe, Belgium, way many people take sleeping pills, and we know it's, it's not a good idea. And, and so for me, that was really interesting. It changed my clinical practice to now, well, prescribe both, really. And it's just not only meditation, as you say, it's physical activity, the quality of our sleep. And we all know this, and yet it's a challenge to actually do it, right? And, and also find the right balance between our jobs and our uh, personal lives. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, someone else who I had as a guest on this uh, podcast um, is has become a pretty much a full-time devotee of advocating lifestyle medicine. You know, I can prescribe, you know, the drugs to lower your lipids, but wouldn't it be better if you just lost weight, exercised, changed the stress levels in your life, right? I think I think you're absolutely right. And of course, you're a surgeon. So, so we need all these things. Um, and yet, I think the role of patients, and we're all potential patients, has been, you know, we, we, we just undergo these interventions, so we swallow the pill, and, and we should stimulate more, 
give them a more active central role and of course also invest in more preventive medicine right so now we're solving things when when there's a problem um, and we know that we could do better in terms of, of prevention. Uh, and we have no choice, really. We live in a society that's hyper-connected. We have these notifications all the time and the smartphones and the emails. They can be really neurotoxic. There's a lot of expectations. We, we, we want to be a perfect partner and parent and be good in our job. So how do you do that? And, and it's not just artificial intelligence and virtual reality and the metaverse. I think the challenge today is maybe to reconnect with our emotional needs. And I think also in the educational system, this is a challenge and, and we've been neglecting what we call emotional intelligence and how do I feel? It's, it's a very important and tough question. How do I feel? How do you feel? How do we interact with one another? So Really, I think it's not just only about the knowledge. I think also in our schools, we need to talk about emotional needs and mental well-being. You mentioned earlier human consciousness, um, like being present. Summarize, if you would, our current understanding of what is consciousness and how do you identify knowledge gaps? It sounds like a crazy question. If you're paying attention, peeps, you are conscious to some degree, but let's, let's get more granular. Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, well, we all know what consciousness is, right? It's what you lose when you fall asleep. It's what the anesthesiologist takes away before surgery. It's what I see when patients are comatose, unconscious. So it's terribly important, and yet we have no clue. Of course, as, as a neurologist, I study the brain. It's something material, but there is no theory that permits me to explain how from something material, something immaterial, thoughts, perceptions, emotions, somehow emerge. Um, so it, it's truly one of science's biggest mysteries, like the other big questions, what is life? What is the origin of matter? And so, yeah, at one point, you, of course, can use the technologies and we've reduced our ignorance, but the past 25 years with the team and all these other labs worldwide, did we solve 50% of that problem? 5%, 0.005%? We don't know what we don't know uh, when it comes to understanding human consciousness. So I think it's going to be a couple of Nobel Prizes, really, to try and really agree upon a definition, scientifically speaking, of what we call consciousness. And of course, as a physician, we got clinical criteria, right? There's the level of consciousness, which is looking at eye-opening, and I would stimulate patients in intensive care. Um, so that's the level. But then there's the content. What exactly am I conscious of? Um, coming in through my senses and we identified a specific external awareness network um, in your associative frontoparietal uh, areas. And then there's the other component, my self-awareness, internal awareness network. It's on the midline, that little voice talking to yourself right now, Jonathan, and everything. Listen, everyone listening to us. Um, very, very powerful, right? This internal dialogue, it permits us to anticipate, um, to predict, to learn from our own autobiographical memory. But sometimes this little inner voice is just turning, turning, and making me anxious and keeping me from falling asleep. And so um, that's where we currently stand. Uh, we do have the technology to identify these networks, but of course the map is not the territory and we lack currently a true explanatory uh, theory 
when it comes to human consciousness. So um, two thoughts on that. One is the whole mindfulness thing about suppressing that inner voice. And one of the people I talked to advised me because, you know, I'm a busy guy doing lots of things and I would have that. And just the simple technique of giving your brain a name and saying, well, thank you very much. And I have a name for my brain and I'm not publicly going to state what it is. But it, it's someone I encountered in my life who, who, who was rather problematic. So I use that name and it's like, well, thank you very much for that observation. That's not particularly helpful to me right now. So would you mind going and standing in a corner? It's sort of the mental act of, of, as if it were a third party. So that's number one. And the second observation, and I'd love you to comment, uh, people talk about taking drugs, you know, recreational pharmaceuticals to expand their mind and have an alternative reality. And I know I'm a bit of a straight-laced character in many regards and a bit pragmatic, but if someone's, if the inputs, the sensory inputs that one is reacting to, be they, you know, snakes swimming around inside the walls of a building or seeing, you know, a bird turning into a dragon, these are not real. These are not true inputs. Is that consciousness? So, one one very practical question for you, one fairly existential. Thank you for that. So, so yes, meditation, and, and you gave one example of an exercise that permits you to create some, some distance, right? Um, my favorite one is just take a, a couple of conscious breaths, right? So, and, and, and if you just try to focus on one thing, which is here the anchor of your breathing, you would have these thoughts after a while and you would just observe them and uh, refocus on the breathing. And, and that's one of the exercises I, I discuss in the book. It's, it's quite powerful. We studied it, but there's many, many others. Um, uh, praying can be one or, or repeating a mantra. Um, so it's, it's about creating some distance. You are not your thoughts. You are also not your emotions. Sometimes when I come back, I'm all angry or I have the impression I'm all angry. I can just say, oh, I have these angry feelings or, or sadness or and and again it doesn't work all the time but that permits you to create some some control some distance um and it's you know um like sport if you say i meditate there's many many ways to do it it's mental gymnastics depending on what you do we would see the different brain circuits networks change because you can also train empathy compassion so that would have an, a different effect in terms of the psychedelic drugs, we've been studying them. We've been injecting these to healthy volunteers while they were in these brain scans. Um, this is a very powerful effect. It, of course, alters your consciousness, your, your thoughts. I myself was in the MR when I received magic mushrooms injected into my veins, psilocybin. Had the bad trip of my life, I must say, Jonathan. There's a documentary by National Geographic on this if you want to watch it. And it was very interesting. I lost my ego. It illustrated to me the difference about knowing. And I read about these drugs and I spoke with a lot of people. But when you're actually there and you are going through the experience, that is still something else. And that's the challenge for us in consciousness uh, research. It, it's not just about the machines um, doing the measures. It's about reconnecting and building that bridge to that person having that specific experience. Um, very hard because, you know, you, you put words on things and, and um, these are all approximations, but it's, it's fascinating to do. And I'm convinced we'll hear more 
about these psychedelics. We now also use them um, therapeutically uh, for people with depression uh, and the like and the microdosing. So it's it's great to understand the neurochemistry. And again, it's it's not only about the pill. So personally, I prefer to go and have these experience through, well, a walk in nature or a meditation exercise. But that's a, that's a personal uh, a personal note. I've spoken about this publicly before. My my godson died as a result of using ecstasy. Basically, I guess depleted all the dopamine in his brain and went from ultra happiness to total despair and and jumped to his death. And there isn't a day go by that I don't mourn the loss of this wonderful young man. And you know, I've I know other people who've succumbed to the the ravages of these things. And I'm with you. You know, I think just going for a walk on. I live in North London and there's a beautiful open space. And my, one of my favorite things in the world is to go up there and watch the sunrise uh, over London. It's, um, it's dramatic and inspiring. So I'm, I'm with you. And my concern about some of these things is there's popular literature. Everyone is a journalist. All you need is a computer and an internet connection. And there's a lot of pseudoscience out there. And there are human beings at the end of it being misled and lives are being damaged. So that I'll get off my I'll get I'll get off my soapbox and get back to my wonderful guest because in last year you published a book the no nonsense meditation book and I saw an online interview where you were on with the scientist and buddhist monk you mentioned Mathieu Ricard please tell us more about this amazing book which I heartily recommend I'm not finished with it yet but I will do very soon and I'll be back on with you for sure Tell us about the importance of meditation, something I've been trying to incorporate into my life as soon as I set aside my cynical surgical brain. <laughs> Thanks for that. Well, I, I'm, of course, uh, a, a skeptic uh, by nature and as a scientist. And I remember just after I defended my PhD, there was a journalist asking, my, uh, you know, Professor Lores, what do you think of mindfulness? And I, I searched it on and. PubMed Medline, and at the time, that was 2000, I wasn't convinced of the evidence. Um, and since then, many things changed. Personally, as I said, I went through a crisis. Um, I discovered meditation for my own well-being and then did the research with people like Mathieu Ricard, these Buddhist monks. Um, but what we saw is, of course, studying these monks is, is, is useful because we take the extreme and it's very easy to to see the changes. But the studies show, Jonathan, that if you and I, we start to meditate, and, and one program that's the most studied is mindfulness-based stress reduction, we already see there changes with these different machines. So this is something we can all do. And in my book, I wanted, first of all, of course, to share my story. It's definitely not unique, but then tell as a scientist what I could see with my own eyes and summarize all the other signs done worldwide. So again, this is not something that's about I believe it or I don't believe it. It's just backed up by science and how we can now make uh, use of this um, as a healthcare provider and, and just inform um, the, the, the public. But I read many books where it was it was difficult to follow the advice. And, and so I just wanted to say, do what you can. If you're a young parent, it's going to be a challenge to say every morning, I'm going to take my 20 minutes. I definitely can't to say to my wife, you know, honey, 
I'm going to sit on my cushion for 20 minutes. You take care of the kids. So, so I, I discuss a lot what, what uh, I coined informal meditation. And you can do that while commuting on the train, when waiting for the elevator, when you're in the supermarket and, and you're just waiting. These last moments are uh, opportunities to just do your favorite meditation exercise. I do it uh, at work in the hospital between two, two consultations. So, so that do what you can philosophy is quite, quite central, but it really has an impact. Um, and, and that to me was, was important to share and to tell this is backed up uh, by science. So I'm very, very grateful I met Mathieu Ricard, who's a wonderful person and who permitted us to start this uh, new area of research with the team. You've also published a no-nonsense meditation book for children with your wife, Vanessa Chalon. How important is it for children to learn about meditation and how early can they start? I think it's terribly important. My my oldest is 23, youngest is two and a half. And of course, we talk a lot about meditation and they would see us sit, you know, and um, do our breathing. And then like my youngest, Margot, she would just come and sit on me and, and start breathing with me. And sometimes I would find her in our room and she would be doing uh, her little exercise. And we need to adapt, of course, with kids. Sometimes it's just chaos and they run around and um, that's perfectly fine. But I think it's important that we just pay more attention. Um, and, and in schools, I repeat, it's, it's not just about the knowledge. I think half of the time at school should be going through, you know, creativity, music, sport, but also these meditation exercises, trying to answer the question, how do I feel? How do you feel? How do we interact one with another? I see way too many kids. You mentioned already um, the ecstasy overdose, but I think there's too many young people who are um, not happy and who even go to the ultimate uh, act of, of trying to commit suicide. Uh, that's what I see in intensive care. It's, it's really too frequent for us to, to just ignore it. And it's not an SOS suicide phone line that's going to be the, 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 the solution here. So why is it that in, in modern society, it seems like we have everything and yet we struggle to, to find our balance and, and, and to accept the difficult moments. And, and I think really meditation is, is just learning, paying attention to your own emotional needs. It's not always permanent sunshine. That's what also my wife, who's a psychologist, uh, mindfulness teacher uh, for kids, you know, it's, it's accepting that things happen, they were not planned, and how do you deal with that? It's contrast, right? So it's interesting that... Um... I was having a, a fairly robust conversation the other night with a friend about the seeming epidemic, pandemic, if you will, of ang social anxiety and dissatisfaction amongst younger people. And this, this person was telling me that they put it down to the availability of social media. And I've certainly watched younger people swiping manically through their Instagram or Facebook and looking for that dopamine hit from the approval rating. But it turns out people who use dating apps can go out on a perfectly wonderful date with a new person and on their way home and have had a lovely evening. And on their way home, they'll be on the dating app swiping. 
just continuously swiping because it's become a new form of addiction. Do you think, and is there any evidence, and I'm sorry to put you on the spot, is there any evidence from the perspective of someone with your expertise that these behaviours are all pervasive and are having an effect on brain chemistry and human performance? Yeah, definitely. I think, well, we all spend a lot of time behind screens, right? These different apps and and social media, they are just constructed in a way that we keep coming back and um, stimulate our reward system and artificial intelligence algorithms are doing exactly that, manipulating us. And we should be aware of it. We should I think it's impossible, you know, to 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 go back and these technologies are there and and it's challenging for our kids and 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 the younger generation to deal with this needing the likes and needing to exist also through their uh, virtual existence. So again, we need to give them the tools how to use these and how to uh somehow of course develop themselves because it's not just about my avatar and my my instagram likes it's about how how i feel we do know how we can help children and adults by the way and and kind of protecting yourself from risks and algorithms that are there to give us the little dopamine hit and um that's well so important and and I think we we cannot just go on neglecting this and and not giving that experience and 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 those tools to the to the kids and and in our educational system. There's only time for me to ask you one more question. I have only a hundred more questions I'd like to ask you, but one more question: If you had three wishes that could be granted to you to advance or improve global healthcare, what might they be, Stephen? Three wishes. Well, of course, if if I could just wish for anything, given that I'm interested in the boundary between life and death and consciousness, I would like to be able to come back from death and be able to share it with you. I would like tools to better understand consciousness because we depend on, on the capacity of our machines and fMRI currently are very indirect way. So give me a machine that gives me information at the millisecond level of those thousands of billions of synapses in real time. Um, That would make my day. And then, of course, to translate all of that knowledge and technology into making our world and our species just better. And that's highly needed. Of course, we, we see currently the war, global warming. So, so that's, I believe, a tremendous uh, challenge. And I think that would be my three wishes. Well, one of my wishes would be to have you back on and talk more. And, and selfishly, I hope that we can get together at some point over a, a, a nice bottle of wine. Totally up for that. It's been a total delight having you. I want to thank you, Stephen, for sharing your expertise in this fascinating area and for hopefully opening people's minds to what is possible and frankly also for helping patients um it's been a real pleasure to speak with you pleasure thank you so much for having me so folks uh if you've enjoyed this wonderful episode please like us on social media and subscribe so you don't miss any episodes but just do me a favor and don't do too much swiping 
Until next week, I'm your host, Jonathan Sakia. Thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. Stay safe, stay well, above all, stay curious. Bye for now.